We are going to continue in our, our series in 1 Corinthians. I've got to kind of take us back a little bit because it's been a couple of weeks, but on April 2nd, we closed out, wrapped up chapter 9. We completed the section where Paul set sacrificial examples uh, to some in, in the Corinthian church who were quarreling over Christian liberty, the right to eat foods sacrificed to idols, which for Paul was okay as long as you weren't doing it as an act of worship or anything like that or causing anyone to stumble. He didn't really have a problem with that. To him, idols are nothing. To him, meat is meat. And that's kind of the way that we should view it as Christians. But there were people in this church and tensions over that. Some thought there's no way you should do that. Others thought it was okay. And so there was some disunity and trouble going on there. And at the, toward the end of chapter 9, the apostle compares believers to professional athletes who train hard and exercise self-control and they compete to win a perishable wreath like runners in the Isthmian Games, which were like the Little Olympics held in Corinth as opposed to the Big Olympics in Olympus. Um, he, he compares Christians to like runners and boxers and athletes in the Isthmian Games. We must exercise self-control and bodily discipline like a professional athlete so that we can run the race marked out for us and win the imperishable wreath. Um, he's not talking about winning salvation. Salvation is a work that's done in Christ and it's complete, but Christians will be rewarded for their service and these sorts of things when Christ returns. And so that's what he's referring to, that we want to live our lives for Christ and live self-disciplined lives and live humble lives and holy lives. And we do this firstly for the glory of Christ. And then secondly, that there's rewards in it for us, which I think is exciting. And we find that in Hebrews 12.1 and obviously 1 Corinthians 9.25 is where we really looked at it. And so then after setting a bunch of sacrificial examples and describing the need for self-control and bodily discipline in chapter 9, Paul provides the Corinthians with yet another illustration in the next chapter, chapter 10. And this illustration or example is negative. It's a negative example. He, he uses something uh, sad and tragic that happened from the Old Testament as an illustration for them, but it's kind of a negative one. And he reminds the Corinthians of Israel's time in the wilderness. It was like a 40-year period. And he describes how a great many of those Israelites were actually destroyed during that time because they failed to exercise self-control. They failed to exercise bodily discipline. They were not acting or walking by faith and these sorts of things. And of course, they were destroyed for that. Instead of, we might say, because Paul's been using this athletic metaphor, which I think is helpful, uh, we might say that instead of running to win, the Israelites of the wilderness ran to sin. And this obviously prevented them from entering into the earthly promised land, right? That's what the whole point of the journey is that they were moving from one geographical location to another into that earthly promised land, and, and that kind of behavior prevented them from crossing the Jordan and entering into that land, and ultimately, the earthly promised land is just a foreshadow of the heavenly promised land, which is the new Jerusalem. So for a great many of those Israelites, it wasn't just about them reaching 
some kind of promised land. It was also about them being saved. Um, so it, very important to, to know this. And, and this is what he's pointing to now in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Paul issues, I count at least six wilderness warnings. And our strategy uh, will be to analyze probably about two per Sunday since there's a lot going on in each one. We'll only have enough time to do two. Of course, I had planned to do like four today and after about nine pages of writing, I was like, the nursery workers are going to kill me because this is going to be a really long message. So I cut it back and my messages, even when I say all of this and I'd use caution are still super long. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be looking at probably two per week. And so three weeks in chapter 10, I would think maybe a little more, maybe a little less. It just depends on how the spirit leads from here out. Uh, and we'll deal with the first two warnings today. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be focusing on verses 1 to 10. So let's pick up where we left off on April 2nd. Look at our first warning. Like I said, we'll probably only deal with two today, obviously. Uh, the first warning that we see here, Paul is saying, do not take God's mercy and blessings for granted. And we see this in verses 1 to 5. Whenever I make a point in a sermon, that point is a summary of a section of Scripture. It's like the big point that Paul is seeking to make in any number of verses. And so that's how I come up with these points. I draw them right from the Scripture. And what he's clearly saying in verses 1 to 5 is, you know, you do not, you need to recognize what's been done for you, and you do not need to take what Christ has done for you for granted, which I think is such a great point because it's, it's something that we all have to deal with. Sometimes we get lazy or apathetic in the grace of God and we kind of let ourselves go, right? Instead of dressing up in a way, we put on sweats. And, and this happens. And so we'll look at verses 1 to 4a first. This is where he begins to say this. He said, for I, telling the Corinthians this after unfolding chapter 9 and running a race and, and competing to win, he now says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses into, in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. All right, so when you first read that set of verses, you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about here. But what he's actually talking about is Israel in the wilderness. And these are, this is, all of these are, all these examples that he's given here. I mean, literally he's unfolding all of them. You're under the cloud, you're passing through the sea, you're baptized. They're all things that were done for the Israelites during that time. And he, he's basically describing various encounters with God the Israelites had in the wilderness after they departed from Egypt. We're all familiar with the Exodus. We're all familiar with that Passover night. And then over the course of a, a few days after that or so, the Israelites, about two million of them or so, march right out of Egypt. And so that's what he's talking about here. His audience would have known exactly what he was referring to. For us, it's a little more challenging. We don't have a Jewish background or really understand Jewish history or even the Old Testament all that great. So they knew what he was talking about. So he's describing these encounters with God the Israelites had in the wilderness after they walk out of Egypt. And first, he mentions that all were under the cloud. 
interesting phrase there, right? There's a series of interesting phrases here. What he doesn't mean is that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, that they literally marched out of Egypt with a cloud above them or over their head. Uh, since the narrative in Exodus 14 describes the cloud either being before them or after them. It was either in front of them or behind them. So point being, when the Israelites walked out of Egypt, there was a cloud that was behind them and a cloud that was in front of them. Literally, a cloud that you could see, a cloud that you could reach into. There was a cloud following them. I don't know if it was like a fog, but there was a cloud there with them. And the cloud is the manifestation of God's presence, God's glory, and God's protection. So as they walk out, they've got some earthly leadership like Moses, but God is, remember, God is invisible and he's spirit, but he's manifesting his presence there with his people as they exit. He's in the form of cloud. He takes on that form. And what Paul's point is, is that not only was God present, but God was present there with his people in the wilderness from the very beginning. The moment they step out of Egypt, God is there in cloud. And, and by the way, God is there all the way through. This cloud is there with them the whole time, the 40 years. This is Paul's point here. Uh, it says... I would just say this, God was there from beginning to end, keeping watch over the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, 21, Psalm 78, 14. So there in those two passages, which is what Paul's probably drawing from, we see the cloud there day and night. And that is the manifestation or presence of God with his people. God is there to protect. God is there to guard. And this cloud became known later on as Shekinah. You, some of you are familiar with this word, the Shekinah glory of God, the Shekinah cloud. And this term was actually, I, I believe it was coined by early rabbinic sages, and they coined it to denote the manifestation of this transcendent God in, in the world of time and space. Like whenever God appeared in some kind of physical form in time and space, he manifested himself in Shekinah, in glory, in a glory cloud. We see the same Shekinah glory cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it on top of Mount Sinai at the issuing of the law. We see it here following and leading the Israelites. There are so many expressions of this cloud, this Shekinah glory, the presence and glory of God in Scripture. They're everywhere. We even see some of them in the New Testament, like I said, with the transfiguration. This word Shekinah is derived from the Hebrew root word Shekin, which means to dwell or to abide. So you have the idea of God dwelling or abiding with his people in the Shekinah glory or cloud. So that's the first thing he mentions, that all these people, your fathers, your early spiritual relatives, and even some of your physical relatives, because there were some Jewish descendants or people from Abraham from the bloodline in this church. He's saying all of them, when they came out, were under this cloud, under the Shekinah. Second, Paul mentions that all passed through the sea. Well, I don't think that takes a, a, a degree in bioscience to figure out what he means there. Obviously, he's talking about the parting of the Red Sea, right? It's not a fable. It's not a myth. There's a portion of that sea that was split so 
Israel could march right through it. And he is, he is literally, right now, Paul, when he says all pass through the seas, recalling this supernatural deliverance when God divided the waters, turned a portion of the Red Sea into dry land so that the people who had just left Egypt could cross over and ultimately escape their pursuers. And who were their pursuers? Pharaoh's forces, right? Exodus 14, 21 to 30, uh, Psalm thir uh, 78, 13. By the way, Psalm 78 is an amazing passage to go through. It kind of lays out all these different things. This might have been primarily where Paul was going here as he's teaching them these examples. So secondly, they all passed through the sea. All the people went through that, and about halfway through that journey through the sea with Pharaoh's forces, the sea closed up on them, and they were all drowned. Third, Paul mentions that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is a very interesting uh, phrase here. At first, I was totally perplexed because baptism is typically a New Testament concept or thing. Uh, there is a type of baptism in the Old Testament, but... Uh, this is an interesting thing that he says here. He's not saying that the Israelites underwent the actual sacramental rite of baptism, like through immersion. He's not saying they all had a Christian baptism. He's not saying that. He's actually using figurative language here, and this is one of the things about Scripture. It uses spiritual or figurative language a lot, and um, the mistake we make is when we interpret that to be literal. And it's figurative language. And uh, he's saying, in a sense, when they passed through the sea, they were baptized into Moses. They were under or in the presence of the cloud of God because it, it was there from the onset. And then when they went through the sea, it was served as a kind of figurative or spiritual baptism in a way or an illustration of baptism as they passed through the sea. And, of course, Moses was there and leading them as well as the cloud. And... Um, that's kind of the meaning there. It was, uh, Paul likens it to a kind of a, a type of baptism. I'm sure they were getting splashed and wet, and it was probably more like a sprinkle baptism. So uh, we shouldn't probably take it too seriously. Uh, but they experienced it. Fourthly, Paul mentions that all ate the same spiritual food. They all had the same diet uh, as they were passing through the wilderness over the course of 40 years. I, can you imagine eating the same stuff? I don't think any of us would, would like that, and the Israelites didn't, and uh, they grumbled and got in a lot of trouble. Uh, but all ate the same spiritual food, and he's recalling the supernatural substance or sustenance that God had provided for the Israelites at that time, the Manna from heaven, it's called the bread of heaven at times, Exodus 16, 31. Remember, they didn't have food, and God creates food from them, from heaven, and gives them bread. And every morning when they woke up, there was this fresh, wonderful bread to eat. How many of you, I mean, this is like Carb Central. I'm loving this, right? Could you imagine if every morning you woke up and there were just fresh boulangerie, French loaves or something? I'd be, I'd be like so happy. This would be like, this is heaven. Do you need anything else? No, I just need bread. I can, man can live off bread alone, but not really. But I love, who loves bread? Anyone? Can I get to see a show of hands? Yeah. And, and this explains why I have a Michelin around my waist, right? It's the bread, the darn bread. But they had all this wonderful manna, all this bread from heaven. And, and notice what Paul calls it here in Corinthians. He calls it spiritual food. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting that he calls it spiritual food. And that's not because it had spiritual, you know, mystical qualities. He's calling it that because 
of who provided it and where it came from. The one who provided it is spirit, God. It comes down from heaven. That's a spiritual realm. And so that's the connection there. They all ate this wonderful spiritual bread. It was provided by God who is spirit, John 4, 2. It came down from his spiritual abode, that is heaven, Exodus 16, 4. That's why it's spiritual food. I would add to this, I didn't find this in a commentary, so I'll tread lightly, but uh, I would only simply add that um, I, I think the term also refers to the divine revelation the Israelites were given at that time. Uh, right? God breathed his word through Moses and through Aaron. He spoke through them. Uh, God breathes his word. He speaks his word through, through prophets and through preachers and through apostles and these sorts of things. And so the Israelites were given spiritual food called manna because it came down from heaven and they were given spiritual food in the form of God's word. And I just lied to you. Why, why did God feed them with his word too? Because truly speaking, man cannot live off bread alone. He must live off the word of God, right? Amen. So God was in the business of feeding them with spiritual bread from heaven and spiritual truth through the mouth of Moses. This is what happened. And the Israelites and, and no man can survive for long on just regular physical bread. We need the word of God. It's what sustains us and keeps us alive. Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4. 4. You might ask, why is the world dying? Because it is not being fed the spiritual bread. It rejects it. It rejects the word. And that's why it's dying and that's why it's suffering. But those who dine on the word of God, they live. So that's another example. They ate, they all ate the same spiritual bread, manna and the word. And then lastly, Paul mentions that all drank the same spiritual drink. This recalls the water God provided for the Israelites when they passed through dry regions like Rephidim and Meribah. Uh, Exodus 17, 1 to 7, Numbers 22 to 13. Um, now, if, if you know these passages or how God gave them water, he gave them water through rocks, like Moses would strike the rock and water would come out. And um, I think my, my theological theory is that, uh, yes, I think God provided water for them the whole time, obviously 40 years, but I don't think it always boiled down to a rock being struck. I think that there were places that they went to that had natural resource. They may have spent a few weeks or even a year or so next to a river, uh, but there were times where they entered places where um, there wasn't any water source. And, you know, man can live without water for only about, what, two or three days at best, three days, me, probably about 15 minutes. Uh, so when they didn't have natural resource, God provided for them. And that's what he's referring to here. Uh, it is, and Rephidim was a super dry place, Meribah, no, no sources of water there. And he, he also calls the water that they drank, or the drink, he calls it spiritual. And why is that? Because God provided it, and God is spirit. And so he's drawing a distinction here between physical water that, you know, a regular resource, and then God creating the resource for them. So the food they ate was spiritual, provided by a spiritual God. Water they drank, provided by invisible spirit God. The point that Paul was really seeking to make here through these examples is that God had mercifully blessed the Israelites with really everything they needed during their time in the wilderness. Uh, 
They, they weren't, they thought they were without because they complained, we'll talk about that, but all of their basic needs were met. You know, they had protection, they had um, food and water, and I mean, they, we live in America where we have been taught that we need a lot more than the bare essentials, amen, right? You need this kind of car and you need a jet boat and you gotta have a water ski and you know, you gotta have this and you gotta have that and you gotta have the, you know, the wine and the good food and you know, I had great food last night, I, I rejoice in all that. I love that God provides those things too but we're under the idea that we have to have well beyond what we actually need. And I think that's the Israelites mentality as they're traveling through the wilderness. They actually liked what they had back when they were slaves in Egypt more so than what they were provided, which is terrible. Uh, but I can see the human nature there. So just by way of summary, God gave them 24-hour protection in the wilderness, deliverance from their enemies, right? Obviously with Pharaoh, uh, a type of baptism in Moses. It's not like true spiritual baptism, but it was a type. And what it meant when they went past through that water was that they were all part of the same community. They were part of a community that Moses was leading. And that's what Today's version of baptism represents in some ways a belonging to a church. Uh, they were also given spiritual food such as manna and more importantly, the word of God. Uh, they were given water um, from God when they had no natural resources. I mean, they, everything that's described here is, is what they needed. I mean, God knows, knew what they needed more than they understood that and gave them exactly what they needed. And it's, it's true for us. And now in, in the very next line, Paul does something extraordinary. He connects all of this to Christ. All of what he's just talked about, the cloud and all this stuff. Verse 4b, he says, For they drank from the spiritual rock. Notice the capitalization. We're not talking about a mountain. We're not talking about a rock in Meribah or somewhere else. This is in reference to a person. And it says... For they drank from the spiritual rock, this is a spiritual rock, not a physical rock, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And he's just now taking everything that they experienced in that wilderness, all the blessing and the grace and the mercy and the provision and the protection, he's tying it all to Christ, which I think is amazing, right? We're under this idea that Christ is, is just a New Testament person and, you know, he, he was the incarnate God and he came down and all this, but now Paul is saying he was there with them during this time. He's not just a New Testament person. He's a full Testament person. He's Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He's always been around and he's tying it all to Christ. What he's really doing here that I think is exciting and interesting is that he's providing a theological explanation to an ancient Jewish myth that was still popular in Paul's day. So he's not just tying Christ to these things for the sake of Christ being around for eternity or being present with them, but he's giving a theological answer to a myth that many of the Corinthians believed and that many people in the first century believed. There was a myth about a rock, a literal physical rock that provided water for them that followed them the whole 40 years. Everywhere they went, oh, there's the rock. Well, there's our water. It's like a movable well. They believe this. It really is a myth that, that Jews today still believe, which I think is just amazing. And 
It's associated with the rock that, that Moses struck for water in Rephidim, like the very first time he does this. And by the way, when he does it at Rephidim and then Meribah later, Rephidim is at the beginning of the Exodus. Uh, Meribah, Meribah is at the end of the Exodus. So you have the bookends of the Exodus is striking the rock and getting water, which shows that God provided throughout their duration. But there were people that believed, hey, he hit that rock, and it's almost like when he hit the rock, we not only got water, but it grew wheels, put itself on a cart, and rolled around with us everywhere we went, and it was a water supply. This is the thought. This is the myth. So what Paul is saying here, and again, in our context, it doesn't make much sense. It sounds like a fairy tale or silly, but they actually believe this happened, and it's certainly possible because all things are possible with God. But what Paul is saying here is he's citing and quoting from this ancient myth. And he's saying that, you know what? He, what he's saying essentially is I'm affirming that you believe in a myth of traveling water, this rock from, from Rephidim. And I'm agreeing that there's some truth to the myth. That's what he's saying. And there's probably some people in the church that have read this far in the letter, and they're saying, I knew there was a rock that followed them around. <laughs> the, the, the myth isn't all myth. There was indeed a rock that followed and, and led at times and refreshed Israel in the wilderness. This part is true, but it wasn't a physical rock from Rephidim. It was the spiritual rock, capital R, and that spiritual rock was Christ. You believe a myth? Fine, but I'm here to tell you today that part of the myth is true, but it wasn't a traveling stone. It was Christ. He was there providing their sustenance. Paul is describing in verse 4b a Christophany. That's the term we use. And that is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, meaning Christ appears somehow. In, in, he, he is there, or I would, should say he is present there in form, in a manifestation of himself because he's been around for eternity. He is there in the wilderness with them, which this pre-incarnate, right? He came later and took on human flesh. This is before that. So a pre-incarnate visitation from Christ. And this was a long visitation, 40 years. Christ was, let's think of it this way, because we know God accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Think of it like this. Christ was the presence of God with the Israelites in the wilderness, because he is the second person of the Trinity, as God made flesh later. So, so Christ was, was there with them. He was the rock. He was the flame of fire and, and the I am at the burning bush, Exodus 3, 2, John 6, 35, John 8, 12, John 10, 9, John 10, 14, John 11, 25, John 14, 6, John 15, 1. What verses am I pointing to you in the gospel of John? All of the I am statements of Christ. What did God say in the burning bush to Moses. When Moses says, who shall I tell the Israelites who sent me? Who should I say who sent me? He says, you tell them I am sent you. Christ called himself the I am. And by the way, the burning bush took place just before the Exodus. So even before the Exodus, 
the rock, Christ, is there. There is a, a Christophany in this bush where Christ is speaking, the Lord is speaking with Moses and setting up this whole exodus. Christ was God there in a Christophany, and he was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He was the Shekinah that protected and piloted the Israelites during that time. Exodus 14, 9, Mark 13, 26, Revelation 1, 7. When Christ returns, he will come on the clouds. What clouds? These vaporous things in the sky? No, Shekinah, the glory of God. He was the consuming fire and unapproachable light at Mount Sinai at the issuing of the law. Exodus 24, 17, 1 Timothy 6, 16. Paul ties it to Christ there in Timothy. And of course, Paul is telling us here, he was the provider of the food that nourished the Israelites physically and spiritually. And he was the spiritual rock that satiated their thirst over the course of those 40 years. Psalm 78, 15 to 16 says this, speaking of the rock, speaking of Christ, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. I told you Psalm 78 is amazing. It recalls all of this. The psalmist there was speaking of Christ present in the wilderness providing the sustenance. Paul is saying that's who was there. It's not a movable rock. It is, a, it is the rock called Christ. When the Israelites reach the end of their journey some 40 years later, Moses pays homage to Christ. Literally, he pays homage to the Lord, and the Lord is Christ. Just before his farewell address, and, and by the way, he passed away shortly after this, but just before he, he gives his final speech to the people and to Joshua, just before he passes away, what does he say in Deuteronomy 32.4? The work of the rock is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without, in, in, without iniquity, without sin. Just and upright is he. Who? The rock. Right there, Moses does it. The divine mercy and, and, and blessings Israel received in the wilderness have been noted in verses 1 to 4. Why? For the purpose of drawing the closest possible connection between Israel in the wilderness, between Christ, between the Corinthians, and between all Christians. Okay, so... so Paul is drawing out these parallels, these examples for the sake of the Corinthians and for the sake of all believers who would come after them. So, And I would just simply say this, as, as, by way of example, right? Ancient Israel in the wilderness, all that they experienced from Christ during that time. Paul is saying, and all of you Corinthians are experiencing these same things. And I would say to us, and I would ask, aren't we, those who are in Christ, experiencing the same mercy and blessings? Of course we are, right? We're experiencing exactly, maybe in a slightly different form in ways, but we are experiencing what our ancient fathers experienced in the wilderness. Is Christ not our protector and deliverer? He is. Have we not been spiritually baptized into him through the Holy Spirit? 
and even physically baptized into his church through immersion? Yes, we have. Maybe some of you haven't been baptized physically yet. That's okay. It's something we can do. There's a nice jacuzzi behind that veil over there. But we, uh, the parallels are to us. And we get that thing nice and warm, don't worry. Or cold in the summertime. Is he not our provider? Everything that we have is from God. Everything. He is the father of lights who gives good gifts. It all comes to us from Christ, to believer and unbeliever alike. God's providence, has it, it's, it's far-reaching. He provides for all. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But for us Christians in particular, is Christ not our provider? Of course not. More so, is Christ, as Christians, is Christ not our very sustenance? He is the true bread of heaven, better than manna. He is the bread of God. He is the bread of life. These are the statements he makes in John 6. I am, I am. You look, Moses gave the Israelites manna in, in the wilderness. But I give you, I have come down from heaven. I am the true bread, the real spiritual bread, the bread that satisfies the spiritual appetite, that nourishes you spiritually is what he says in John 6. I'm the true bread of heaven. I'm the bread of God that comes down. I'm the bread of life. You know, in the context, he was preaching in a synagogue and everyone that was there had gotten fish tacos from him the day before. And they all traveled about 50 miles to get more fish tacos from him and says, you need more than fish tacos, even though they're delicious. That's some darn good tilapia. You need spiritual bread and that is me. Because without spiritual bread, we will not live eternally. And fish tacos will feed us for a few hours. Or if you're like me, a few minutes. It's like eating Chinese food. Dying. John 6, 32 to 35, he is our sustenance, not just our provider. He is the rock who provides living water to satiate our spiritual thirst, John 4, 10 to 11. Amen? Amen. You see the connections? I'm not spiritualizing the text. This is the, these are the connections that Paul is making. What else is he? He is the, he is the chief what? Cornerstone. He is the rock. He is the chief cornerstone on which we, the living stones, rest, right? Psalm 118, 22, Matt, Matthew 21, 42, 1 Peter 2, 5, you are living stones. We're all part of a spiritual house. And he is the rock and chief cornerstone foundation. And, and, and we in here, we in this room, Shane Craig and you and me and, and, and everyone who names the name of Christ is a living stone sitting on that solid foundation that wind and storm cannot knock down. It's all there. All the connections are there. These things are popping off in the Corinthians' minds. Oh, my goodness, the Israelites had the same mercy and blessings that, that we have. And these are the connections that we are to make here as well, right? And so now we must ask and answer the question, why does Paul make all the, give all these incredible examples? It's all really positive so far, and it is a negative illustration, and we'll find out why. But why does he, why does he make all, give these examples and make all of these connections for the Corinthians and for us? 
so that he can drop the hammer in verse 5. Literally. Remember the first points, taking the mercy in God for granted. He's just illustrated the mercy in God given to the Israelites, given to the Corinthians, and given to us. And now he changes direction. Verse 5, he said all these wonderful things. Right now, the Corinthians are on cloud nine. And he says, nevertheless, with most of them, referring to ancient Israel in the wilderness, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is like filling this beautiful balloon. And, and the Corinthians are like, this is the most beautiful balloon. It looks, it's even prettier than the China spy balloon. That was a joke. And then in verse 5, Paul goes, pop! And just deflates it. Paul, you're such a drag. You know, he, he just, the guy is just so melancholy and depressing and... You know, we want a positive message here, right? Like in today's churches. And he just, this is, a, this is a sidekick to the gut. Nevertheless, with most of them in the wilderness, God was not pleased for they were overthrown. Despite all these divine blessings, all this mercy and these divine blessings, Paul says very clearly, God was not pleased with most of the Israelites at that time. And the proof that God did not approve of the majority is that they were, what, overthrown in the wilderness. There's the proof, right? He wasn't thrilled with them at all. How does he prove that? He overthrew them. The way the CSB Christian Standard Bible puts it is even more dramatic. It says he struck them down in the wilderness. It's not just overthrown. You get the idea of overthrown being a militaristic term, like you overthrow a capital, you know, or something like that. Think of Washington under Trump. I don't know. That's probably a terrible example. <laughs> I really don't think they were trying to do that, but in any case, who cares? But you get the idea of a government or a nation being overthrown. That's the ESV rendering, which is strong, but man, I like the, the CSB. Struck down, destroyed, killed, slaughtered. Mm. And JMAC, John MacArthur, says that uh, the, the term most of them, that's a gross understatement. That's a terrible understatement. Like, I don't think he's challenging the word of God, but just to say that, it's, it's like, that's an understatement. Why does he say that's an understatement? Because only two of the original group that had left Egypt actually were permitted to enter the land of Canaan or the promised land. Only two. And that's Joshua and Caleb. So Paul could have said 99.9% .9 were struck down. <laughs> only Two, and that is staggering when you consider there were about two million that originally left. 998,000 or 1.9, whatever million vanquished. Only two OG, original, original gangsters from Egypt. That's it. Joshua and Caleb. That is insane. Is it true? Yeah, it is. It's just staggering to think that, and it is an understatement, most of them. I guess it's not, but, and, and listen to this. Even the two leaders were not permitted to enter, Moses and Aaron. Whoa. Even the two leaders were not permitted to go with the rest of the Israelites. 
the new Israelites. Unbelievable. Why? Because those two guys did not obey the Lord's command at Meribah, which was toward the end of that journey. They were told to strike a rock one time to get water from it for the Israelites who were thirsty. And Moses hit it once and it didn't, the water didn't just start exploding and coming out of it like, you know, the geyser over there in Yellowstone. So he's like, maybe I should give it another whack. And he hits it again. Then the water starts flowing. But God said hit it once, not twice. He was testing Moses' faith. And he struck it twice and he sinned, brought repro reproach upon the testimony of God because Moses announced to the whole congregation that was there or whoever was left or whatever that I'm going to strike it and God's going to give you water. And he disobeys right in front of all the people. And in a sense, he embarrasses God. And he is now disqualified. He and his brother Aaron, they're disqualified from entering into the promised land, Numbers 20, 10 to 13. That is so, so sad. And those, there were actually another multitude of people there to cross over uh, with Joshua and Caleb. And the point being that, so it's not, don't think that only Joshua and Caleb were the only ones to cross there was an entire new generation. Remember, 40 years. So there was newer people that God permitted to enter with them, but the old generation, God waited till they all died off. He was not pleased with them. They weren't people of faith, and they were rabble. And really what Paul is doing here is he's, he's kind of pointing back to 1 Corinthians 9.27, you know, at the beginning or the end of the last chapter, there he spoke about the kind of ruin that can disqualify someone from ministry or receiving the reward. And that's exactly what happened with Moses and Aaron. And almost two million original Israelites. It makes sense for him to warn at the end of the last chapter and then give an example of how that plays out. He says, I don't want to, after I've preached, I don't want to be disqualified from ministry for not exercising self-control, for not using bodily discipline, for being a man of no faith. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to preach and live the word and be, be part of that and be real and true. And, and you know, I want to be a, a fast runner who runs toward the prize. That's what he's saying at the end of chapter nine. And now he's showing how people ran and then got lazy and apathetic and didn't get the reward. That's what he's saying. And he did not want the Corinthians or any Christians to be disqualified like Moses and Aaron and an entire generation of Israelites. It's a tragedy. He, he didn't want that to happen with the Corinthians. And yet, many in the Corinthian church were already headed down the same broad road, sadly. They were taking God's mercy and blessings for granted and sinning. They were kind of like antinomian. You know, I use that phrase a lot to describe a, a person who professes faith in Christ but doesn't believe that the law of God applies to them or that they need to live a holy life, and they just profess Christ and just live fast and loose and, and have no mind for Christ and no mind for righteousness and no mind for holiness that is a good description of the wilderness Israelites. That is not a good description of Moses and Aaron. They were godly men. They made some mistakes. But that's what Paul was worried about in this Corinthian church, that you profess Christ and then you're getting drunk and engaging in sexual immorality and doing the same things 
He is so concerned and he knows that it's happening in this church at Corinth. And he knows that because of this pattern of wicked behavior and lack of faith and lack of holiness and reverence for God, he knows that God is also not pleased with them and that they are about to be overthrown. Hmm? It is a huge mistake to think that God does not operate like, you know what, he, he, we see him doing things in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he doesn't operate that way anymore. Wrong! God is God and God is just. Same God for all eternity. You cannot think to yourself that we're under, we're under a different dispensation now and it's okay to live fast and loose because we're under grace. Wrong! God demands that you live a holy life. And now the Corinthians are patterning themselves after ancient Israel. And what happened to them in the wilderness? They were overthrown. Don't you think for one minute that you are above this? And I'll talk about this more. This is a warning. And we do need to move to the second warning here. Number two, do not sin like Israel did in the wilderness. Very simple. Verses 6 to 10, we see it. Uh, we pick it up at 6a. Paul says something before he really gets into describing these parallel sins. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. He's talking about what Israel went through in the wilderness and their terrible example and the mistakes that they made and the wickedness that, that they practiced and the sinfulness and the faithlessness and them not going into the promised land and even with what happened to Moses and Aaron, Paul is now saying that those things exist on the pages of Scripture as a historical record for our learning. They're there for us as examples. They're there for you Corinthians as examples, right? God has laid it all out here so that we can read it and learn from their examples. And, and, and you know, those who, who do not learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. So we need an accurate account of history in the form of examples so we can look at them and learn and not make the same mistakes. This is what Paul is saying right off the bat. He makes clear that Israel's wickedness in the wilderness is an example for the Corinthians and all Christians, a learning tool for every generation of believers. And in verses 6b to 10, Paul lists five sins Israel did commit in the wilderness. That's not to say that they only had, you know, they only had five sins. They were sinning in every way imaginable, but he has a list here in the rest of the text. And I want to look at the first sin on the list, and that is A, evil desires, verse 6b. There it is on the screen, evil desires, 6b. What does he say in 6b? He says that we, they've been given to us as examples, that we might not desire evil as they did. There it is, simple very simple. Did Paul have a specific evil desire in mind? Yes, he did. This is not to limit the level or number of, a number of evil desires that the Israelites had during this time. They had all sorts of evil desires. But he has one in particular in mind here. What has he been talking about in chapter 8, chapter 9? 
He's been talking about food sacrifice to idols. That's the immediate context, right? So the evil desire they had, the express specific evil desire they had in mind had to do with food. They had an evil desire for food. That's what he's saying here. And of course he was undoubtedly thinking of like Numbers 11.4 and Psalm 106, 13-14a, which say, now, and this is a course taking us back to the wilderness where the Israelites were moving from one place to another. In Numbers 11.4 it says, now the rabble that was among them, so there was a group of even less scrupulous evil desiring people that were with the Israelites then, but he says, now the rabble, that's them, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel followed their example and they wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Hmm. So this is what Paul is talking about. You had a loser group with the Israelites who negatively influenced the majority of them and now everyone is crying together, I don't want the manna. They had an evil desire for something beyond what God had provided. And anytime a desire arises in us for something beyond what God has provided, it is evil. We are saying to our provider, you are not giving me enough. And that is an evil thought. I don't have enough. I don't have what I need. Evil. You're rejecting what God has provided. You're not... You're not content. You need to be like Paul who said, I've had much and been wealthy and I've had almost nothing and been poor and I'm just content to be in Christ. But this is it. And Psalm 106, 13 to 14a says the same thing. And even more so, it says, but the Israelites in the wilderness, they soon forgot God's works. You know, parting the Red Sea, bringing them through there, all the blessings and all the supernatural awesome things that he was doing for them. But they soon forgot his works and they also refused, they were impatient and refused to wait for any counsel coming from him through Moses. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. We want food. Set us up a buffet. The Israelites had an evil desire for hometown buffet, for food. I don't know who would ever desire that. That's nasty. Frog legs. They had an evil desire for food. They had a strong, wanton, that's a lustful, evil craving. They did not appreciate what the rock who is Christ was providing. And yet they, and, 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 and in combination to that, we don't want what you're giving us. We're tired of this. And they lusted after the meat pots and bread of pagan Egypt under an oppressive ruling nation that treated them horrifically. We want the food they were giving us. Exodus 16, 3. That's an evil desire. And, and I think it's understandable. I'm not <laughs> justifying it. But I think that if I were given the same food for a while, maybe two days, <laughs> I'd be going, enough macaroni and cheese! Or my wife, if she's hot and mad at me, three days of casseroles. <laughs> and tonight's special is tuna casserole, which would put, it's not sushi. 
put me right over the top. I, I think that their behavior is ridiculous, amen? But I think I can understand it. How about you? Come on now. Are we better than them? Are you kidding me? Worse sometimes. They wanted the meat pots. They wanted the bread. They didn't want the manna. They didn't want the quail. They didn't want anything that Christ was providing. He gave them what they needed, and they had a wanton desire for more. I want Noah's tonight. Some of the Corinthians, sadly, were headed in a similar direction. They had evil desires, a strong wanton craving for meat sacrificed to Greek gods. Why? Because it was the highest quality meat you could find. Because when a Corinthian brought their offerings to these false gods, they brought the best stuff, the USDA choice, right? They didn't bring the, they didn't bring the, the, the cheapo depot market stuff. They brought down the good stuff. And so this meat was super, super high quality and the Corinthians were addicted to this stuff. I want the meat sacrificed to the gods because it's the best meat. And some even thought that that meat came with spiritual benefits, the removal of airborne demons and other superstitions. Yes, we already know that Paul did not outright condemn the consumption of these kinds of meats, provided that the person who's participating with them knows that meat is meat and idols are nothing and they're doing it in honor of the true God and they're not causing a stumbling block and all that. We understand that that is permitted in a sense, but that's not how all the Corinthians were treating it. Some of them were lusting after these meats because the regular meats weren't good enough. Whatever it is that Christ was providing for them in a normal daily basis just wasn't enough. So I'm going to go down to the temple of Aphrodite and get some grade A cuts. And it comes with spiritual benefits. It doesn't have just vitamin D. It also drives away all these demons and things. This was their superstition. And now you've got Christians engaging in this. And what they're really doing is committing idolatry. So don't think that because Paul says it's okay if you have the right perspective. I think Paul's overarching view was just stay away from all that stuff. It's safer. Let's look at the second sin on the list, right? The first was evil desires. The second is idolatry. Verse 7, Paul says in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I think that's a very polite way of saying they engaged in some horrendous sinful behavior. The Bible is discreet when it describes these things. We should be discreet. But they, I, I don't even want to know what the play is. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'll just stop. Because now you're going, yeah, I wonder what it, no, no. Paul says that some of the Israelites in the wilderness, they were just idolaters. In fact, the mass majority of them were. He's then quoting, what he's actually quoting is Exodus 32. What is Exodus 32? It is the golden what passage? The golden calf, right? Is there a better, more explicit example of Israel's idolatry than that while they were in the wilderness? I don't know. Maybe the way they worshiped food. But the golden calf is a wonderful illustration. That's exactly where Paul takes them. Exodus 32 in these verses that I'm quoting are from Exodus 32. In verse 1, the Israelites said, Since we do not know what has become of Moses, remember he was up on the mountain getting the law for a while. He didn't just come down on day two. He was up there spending time with God. So they're wondering, I, since he's gone, we, we really don't know. This is probably on like day three. Well, since we don't know where he's at or what's become of him, hey, Aaron, why don't you make for us some gods? 
that shall go before us and lead us through the wilderness, you know, like the pillar of cloud and the pillar, make us a big golden statue that'll do us, like, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar or something. He didn't say that, but you know the point. So Moses is gone for a period of time. They know why he's gone and they're impatient and they have a lust and craving for food and all these other things and for idols already because they were they were subjected to many idols in Egypt because Egypt has a pantheon of gods. And so they're like a golden calf. I didn't look, but it's probably a parallel to some false god in Egypt. But they're telling him, hey, make us, make us a new god because I think God's left. That's verse 1. In verse 4, Aaron took all their gold earrings and rings and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made them a golden calf. You know the story. In verse 6, it says, and they rose up early the next day. There's nothing like getting up at the crack of dawn to worship an idol. They rose up the very next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then the people did what? As Paul is saying in verse 7 of our text, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That's what he's quoting. The burnt offerings and peace offerings were not made to Yahweh who was now consuming the top of Mount Sinai. You would think that with blazing fire and smoke at the top of a mountain where your leader just went up to commune with God, you would think that down below as you're watching that play out, you wouldn't say, hey, make us a God. <laughs> make us a God. I mean, I... I, I'm pretty stupid, but even I can tell that's probably a bad idea with what I'm seeing here, right? That's like, you know what? Hey, create us a house out of gasoline. Yeah, that's pretty stupid because a fire might come down. They were not offering these offerings to Yahweh, to the Lord, to Christ who was there with them in the fire and consuming fire and cloud at the top of the mountain. They were not offering them to Jesus. They were offering them to the golden calf they had just made. And afterwards, the Israelites sat down and ate the very foods they sacrificed to the golden calf. <laughs> Sounds like the Corinthians. And they drank, which means got drunk, and then they rose to play. So they worshiped an idol, sat down to eat, got hammered, and then got up and got nuts. Like, where's the table? It's time to dance. They got nuts. They got crazy. They sinned. What type of play? We don't know. Thank God. The text doesn't say how they were playing. I don't think it was good. Probably drunken revelry of some sort or some kind of debauchery. Maybe like, uh, I don't know, spring break down in Florida. Right? Sadly, Moses' description, because he's the one that that wrote Exodus there and wrote all this description and tells the history of what was going on there. He wrote it later on. Moses' description of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 sounds a bit like Paul's description of communion at the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, 20 to 22. Hmm. I wonder if there's a connection. He wrote, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Okay. They were coming together for the Lord's Supper. And Paul just says, when you come together, that's not actually what you're doing. You say that's why you come together, but I'm telling you that's not why you come together and quit lying. And he says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So 
Everyone is just taking of the elements and turning it into some kind of meal for each other. And by doing that, they're, they're not letting everyone else participate in the communion feast. And it says one goes hungry, another one gets drunk. And then he says, do you despise the church of God? Because that's how you act. Do you, do you despise Christ? The one you've allegedly come together to celebrate? Sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? The getting drunk and the false worship and the revelry and whatever follows drunkenness, which I spent plenty of the day drunk back in my stupid days and nothing ever good came out of that. It wasn't like, wow, he, he got hammered and got a degree in college. He got hammered and dropped out of high school. He had to take a test later on to get a diploma. Not, not good. And, and, these, and what Paul is saying is that the Corinthians were gathering to gorge themselves. That sounds like the golden calf thing. And to get drunk, that sounds like the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. And they were doing it all in honor of Christ. <laughs> Talk about adventures and missing the point. This shows that they had insanely wrong views of Christ. Or maybe they were just worshiping a different Christ altogether. And I don't think it was everyone in the church, but it was some in there. Maybe they were worshiping a Christ of their own concoction of, or of their own imaginations, a, a Christ that is, is perfectly okay with drunken worship and debauchery and every other form of wickedness. There is a tremendous amount of people today who attend churches who think it's okay. That's, that is not Christ. That is your Christ that you created. It's not the biblical Christ. And the Corinthians are guilty of this. And now what are they doing? They are committing idolatry. Just as the Israelites did. The Israelites, on the other side, they had gathered to gorge themselves and get drunk in honor of the golden calf. The, the Corinthians were doing it in honor of Christ. I really don't see any kind of difference between wilderness Israel and the Corinthians, right? I don't see any difference in what they're doing here. I think both were worshiping idols a false Christ, and a false God called the golden calf. And we mustn't forget how the Corinthians idolized a great many other things like freedom and food and knowledge and abstinence and marriage and singleness and money and sex and human wisdom. And, of course, at the top of the list, preachers. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow... And I'm not even going to name them, but there are probably at least 20 verses in 1 Corinthians that lay out all of these various forms of idolatry in the Corinthian church. I've got them here, and they're in your bulletin, so just find a really long list. They, the wilderness Israelites, committed various forms of idolatry. The Corinthians were doing it too. Anytime something in our lives rises to the level, to the importance level that is equal with God or above God, it is idolatry. And that is not a hard thing to do. It's actually scarily easy for us to put something right there. Now, when we're questioned, we'd say, I would never put that above God. Well, let's take a look at your checkbook. 
you tithe $200 in October and spent $2,700 on Amazon. <laughs> it's like the Maury memes that are out there, right? You, you know, you say you're a man, but your skinny jeans tell us a different story, <laughs> right? You know, you, you say that Christ is the God you worship, but your mammon or your money shows us that you worship yourself because 99.9% of your spending is aimed at you and less than a percent is aimed at the things of Christ. It's very easy to do this, friends, and they're doing it. Why is it here? For our example, so that I can weep later. Let's go to the third sin on the list, C, sexual immorality, verse 8. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Oh, my goodness. The Israelites, obviously, are also committed sexual immorality in the wilderness. Paul was pointing to Numbers 25 here. These verses are from Numbers 25. In verses 1 to 2, it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the Israelites uh, ate and bowed down to their gods. So when they entered into this region called Shittim, the Israelites came in and they met a bunch of Moabitess women and some of these women were very attractive. The men couldn't control themselves. They didn't have discipline, self-control. They start uniting with these women sexually. The women are like, hey, let's take it to another level in our relationship. Let's go down to the altar and offer to my God. Let's go offer to Baal or Baal if you want to call him that. And that's what they were doing. So it started with sex and then led it, sexual immorality and then led into idolatry. And then Numbers 25, verse 5, Moses commands the judges to kill everyone who yoked themselves to the pagan women and to their gods. And that god in particular was Baal or Baal of Peor. The region was actually, it was in Shittim, but it was in the county or city or district of Peor. In verses 7 through 8a, it says that an Israelite man and Midianite woman were engaged in sexual immorality in a tent. Hey, let's go back to my place. Okay. And Aaron's grandson, Phineas, who was very zealous, sees them go in, knows what they're doing in there. It's not like he's a peeping Tom. He just knows what they're about. And he picks up a javelin and he opens the tent and he throws it through both of them and shish kebabs them and pins them to the ground, killing them. That's what he did. And then in verse 8b of Numbers 25, it says that right about that moment, God lifted a plague that he had dropped on them right before that. And that's on Israel that he dropped the plague and it left 24,000 dead. 24,000 were killed. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there seems to be a discrepancy between Moses' numbers and Paul's. Moses says 24,000. Paul says 23,000. Don't think to yourself, finally, I found a contradiction in the Bible and I don't have to believe it. Wrong. David Garland suggests that Paul estimated roughly 20,000 deaths at Shittim and added the 3,000 that were slayed at the Golden Calf incident. By the way, at the Golden Calf, there were people that were killed for that. Exodus 32:28. So Paul is thinking, 
There's about 20,000 that were killed at Shatim. There was 3,000 that were killed at the Golden Calf at the foot of Sinai. He combines them to equal 23,000. This is a plausible explanation. That's apologetics, by the way. The Israelites committed the sin of sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab, Midianite women, Moabitess women at Shatim, at Peor. The Corinthians also committed the sin of sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, chapter 6, 12 to 20. We already know this. You can recall now from chapter 5, the young man who was sleeping with his stepmother, and there was other forms of sexual immorality going on there. Why else does Paul cry out in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality? because the church was engaging in it, or at least supporting it. Now let's look at the fourth sin on the list. Detesting Christ, verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Again, talking about Israel in the wilderness. Paul is referring to Numbers 21 in verse 4. Verse 4 describes Israel's journey around Edom along the Red Sea. Today the region is called the Gulf of Aqaba. It was um, there that the people were starting to grow really impatient as they were moving around. Um, the Edomites would not let them go through their land, so they had to go around. And then in verse 5, it describes how they put God to the test through constant complaining during that time. Uh, it says in verse 5, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, the manna and the quail. This is what the people were saying. And then in verse 6, it says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And we've already uh, learned that Israel was, or that Christ was Israel's deliverer and protector and provider and rock in the wilderness. So he is the one that they are putting to the test here at Aqaba, right? When they put God to the test at this moment, they're putting Christ to the test because Paul says he was there. Uh, see, Psalm 106, 14b to 15 describes the same event. It says, they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked for, but then sent a wasting disease among them. What was the wasting disease? Snake venom. And there's no death toll that's recorded there at Aqaba. In Numbers 21, 7, it says the Israelites actually uh, did repent in verse 8, it says that Christ provided deliverance for those bitten, a bronze serpent attached to a pole. If they looked at it, Moses held it up. If they looked at it, they would be saved from the effects of the poison and live. You know the story. Most of you do. Later, much later, when Christ comes during his incarnation and ministry, he actually connects this event to his crucifixion. If the people look upon the Son of Man on the cross, like the serpent on the pole, if they look upon the Son of Man, that's Christ on the cross, through the eyes of faith, they will be delivered from the poison and death of sin and the judgment of God. They will have eternal life, John 3, 14 to 15. Psalm 78, 17 to 18 uh, describes how Israel in the wilderness put Christ to the test at Tibera. It says, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Hmm. These people don't get it. They just lost a bunch of people to serpents. Day six. It seems like a good idea to repeat what we did six days ago. <laughs> it's just these people. Us, we don't get it. And the connection is the... 
Corinthians were testing Christ in similar ways by taking his mercy and his blessings for granted by sinning like Israel in the wilderness. Let's look at that fifth sin and start to wrap it up. E, grumbling. Verse 10, Paul says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Israel grumbled about food and water, Exodus 15, 24, 16, 1 to 3, and 16, 7, 8, and 17, 7. I mean, they just grumbled about what they were eating, what they were drinking. They grumbled about the difficulty of traveling in the wilderness. This is just no good for my back. Numbers 11, 1, they grumbled about the leadership of Aaron. Numbers 16, 11, they grumbled about the death of some essentially apostates, people who got really loose in their faith and were challenging God. That's the, the sons of Korah and Korah himself. Numbers 16, 41, they were all killed and destroyed and all the Israelites were whining about that. They even grumbled about the Lord's promise to bring them into the earthly promised land. Numbers 14, 2 and 27, 29, 36. Deuteronomy 127, Psalm 106, 24. And is that land going to be any good? You know, they just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. And Paul says, because of this, God sent the destroyer to destroy the grumblers. Numbers 11, 1. Numbers uh, 16, 3 to 33 are wonderful accounts of them being destroyed for the grumbling, including 14,700 by plague because of their grumbling. Numbers 1641 to 50. The destroyer could be a special angel God used to dole out divine judgment. Exodus 12, 23 and Hebrews 11, 28 both affirm that the same exact destroyer slew all the firstborn children and livestock in Egypt. Remember when the death angel came? That's the destroyer. Same, same person, same angel. Did the Corinthians grumble? <laughs> when did they not? They had disputes, and what are disputes? Disputes are a form of grumbling. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, and you see the same thing playing out in the Philippian church. Uh, the Corinthians also quarreled, which is either the cause or result of grumbling. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 2 Corinthians 12, 20, they were grumbling and grumbling and grumbling about everything, about their favorite preachers and about they didn't like the food they had and they wanted that idle meat and they were grumbling about each other and I, it just never, ever stopped. There was so much disunity in this church. The stories, just closing, the stories from the wilderness generation were meant to function as examples for the Corinthians and for us and all Christians. The history of Israel is not merely of antiquarian interest but is appropriated and applied to the church. Paul was highly concerned about the sinful similarities between Israel and the wilderness and the Corinthians. The parallels and connections are uncanny. And his objectives were to expose the Corinthian sins through Israel's examples and then also to call for their repentance and to get them back in the race running toward the imperishable prize. That's what he wants for them. Some of you have deviated and stepped out of the race to engage in sin and these things. And this is what's going on, right? My question to us is, are we taking God's mercy and blessings for granted? Do we sin like Israel did in the wilderness or maybe like the Corinthians did at Corinth? Both are examples for us, right? The ancient Israelites and the Corinthians. What sins? Evil desires 
idolatry, worshiping something other than God, sexual immorality, testing Christ, putting Christ to the test. That's never wise. Grumbling. These are the sins that are listed. Is this what our life looks like? Are we characterized by these terrible things? If so, we need to understand that God is not pleased with us and we could be overthrown. And you say to yourself, I could never be overthrown because I'm in Christ and I'm safe. Wrong! You will never lose your salvation if you're truly saved, but you can be overthrown. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. They were Christians who were destroyed and removed from this earth. It's, it's, a, it's a mistake to think that because of the grace of God that we will never face the judgment of God. You will never face the final judgment of God and be cast into the lake of fire if you're in Christ. But you can be judged by God. You can be destroyed by God. You can, even as his child, be reprimanded to the point of being removed from this earth. You have become no earthly good to me. I'm bringing you home. And your mansion's going to be a little smaller. I don't know if that's how it works, but... We are not above these warnings. These, these warnings are being given to a church. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're above them. Our salvation is saved in Christ if we are indeed saved, if we have repented of our sin, if we are trusting in Christ. That salvation is lock, stock, and barrel. It's safe. But we can be disqualified from our heavenly reward. We can be destroyed and removed from this earth. Ananias and Sapphira are prime examples. Acts 5, 1 to 11. Thomas Schreiner wrote, and I think I put it in your bulletin, if Israel in the wilderness was judged after receiving so many blessings, believers must be vigilant as well. They must not think they are exempt from God's judgment. I know that I am exempt from God's final judgment, but may I not make the mistake of thinking that I can live frivolously or faithlessly or in wickedness while practicing any of these sins habitually and think that I am okay with God and He is okay with me. I could be overthrown at any moment. And if He doesn't completely overthrow me, He will chastise me. Why? Because He loves me. And He chastises those whom He loves. And sometimes that chastisement is heavier than anything we could ever imagine. Take us right out of here. Do not make the mistake. Israel's wilderness examples are our examples. The Corinthians examples are our examples. May we learn from our ancient relatives and stop taking Christ's mercy and blessings for granted, repenting of our sins. You know, may we begin to exercise self-control and bodily discipline so that we can run to win our prize, the imperishable wreath. Why? 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 Ultimately, for the prize? No, for the glory of Christ. He has saved us. Why would we not want to live for Him and give everything to Him? That should be the cry of our heart. If we have Christ, we have everything, and most importantly, eternal life. 
Therefore, we should offer up everything to him daily, repenting of our sins daily, confessing our sins daily, not letting those patterns develop and take hold of us, not giving ourselves over to long-term idolatry or anything else that we would have short accounts with ourselves. May we live for Christ because he lived and died for us. Amen? Amen.